to episode 52 of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke. And on this episode, I had the pleasure in interviewing Coach Dan Baker. Dan Baker is one of the world's leading experts in the strength and conditioning profession. Dan has a PhD in sports science and is also the president of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. Dan is also well known for working with the Brisbane Broncos rugby league team from 1995 up until a couple of seasons ago. On this episode, me and Dan discuss many topics, including Dan's background, influences on Dan, problems Dan sees within the strength and conditioning profession. We also discussed about Dan's thoughts on program design, periodization, and of course, we also talked about energy systems and maximum rugby speed. We also discussed many more topics throughout this show. It was a really great show, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Okay, Coach and Dr. Dan Baker, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on my podcast. Just for the listeners who mightn't be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many, just fill us in, Dan. Uh, I, uh, I worked at the Brisbane Broncos as a strength and conditioning coach for 19 years. Uh, I worked at the Queensland Reds, I worked at powerlifting, I worked at netball, I worked at soccer, uh, track and field. I worked at a lot of different sports, diving. Um, so I've worked across a lot of different sports and I have a PhD in sports science from me to Cowan Uni um, I suppose I think people probably would know me from publications as well because I tried to do a lot of publications that were applied for strength coaching because I was pissed off seeing the bullshit published by academics yeah. when they tested or inferred on strength training by doing a flexipolicus study on the little finger and I threw it back to the dead. So I'm serious, they were doing that in the 80s and 90s. I think, God, you guys living on the moon. So I, I like to do all my studies I did were on um, athletes, you know, semi-professional, professional, or, you know, on that pathway identified as uh, potential professional athletes. Um, uh, so a lot of people might have read my studies there because I... I I really think there's a dearth of information or a paucity of information uh, that applied to practical strength training um, coming out of Western literature um, in the 80s and 90s and until maybe the last five or six years. It's pretty good now, though, but 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, there's you know, too many studies on fingers and uh, things like that, anterior, to be honest, anterior. <laughs> And not on squats and deadlifts and jump squats and bench throws and cleans and jerks and or, or, or you know stuff like that. What just uh, just on that, Dan? Uh, and this isn't actually part of part of the questions I have down. But in in your mind, then what what does, I know you, you you've kind of put the science uh, the scientific research in the direction you want is so like what would you like to see more research on? Let's say in in the field of strength and conditioning in the coming years. Oh, well, it's got to be on sports performance. Yeah. That, that is different to exercise science. Exercise science in Australia now is different to sports performance. So exercise science is, you know, like, you know, put something on a treadmill, oh, you got diabetes or asthma or shit like that, you know, which is a noble cause and it's important. Mm-hmm. But if you're an athlete, you've got to look at sports performance. What improves sports performance, which is different to, you know, your fat neighbors losing weight and looking good. Yeah, or yeah, someone with diabetes or heart, you know, they're noble causes and people need to study that. But if you want to get look into sports, you need to say 
how do I improve practically sports performance? Uh, and it has to be a small worthwhile change that a team or an athlete would embrace and do. You know, so it has to be uh, practically implemented. Uh, I had one kid say to me once, what do you do for the gain on the H-loop or the neural drive to power? And I said, fuck, mate, don't worry about that. Power is you lift more weight at the same speed or you lift uh, the same weight with more speed. Yeah. Don't worry about the gain on the H-loop when you're training. Yeah. Right? So people get lost in science sometimes. Look at the outcome. There's only two ways to be more powerful. You lift more weight than you are now but at the same speed or you at the same weight but with more speed in the future. That's the source of power. Yeah. Two ways only. You've actually jumped the gun with one question I've had, and this is something I've I've been actually myself been you know really kind of mulling over the last while, and and for some reason I I just don't know why coaches don't actually use more things like tendo units. Now I know they're they're dear, but for instance, Dan, you've just said there, right? So really, our our job as you know physical preparation coaches, strength conditioning coaches, whatever title you want to give it, um, and this is with injury reduction aside, it, it's to it's to you know. In, increase our athletes' motor potential. You know, uh, increase our athletes' ability to produce the most amount of force in the least amount of time. And therefore, if they can actually carry that over to their sport-specific skill, they'll reach higher levels of sports mastery. So my question, like, was to some of my colleagues, was that, okay, you have a guy, right? He squats one hundred and eighty kilos. You bring that squat to two hundred, but it takes him an extra half a second or a second to get the two hundred kilo up. Like, have you actually made him any better? Because he's actually he's moving that weight slower than he was the one eighty. So I'm kind of like, if you've moved that 200 at the same speed he was moving 180 at, then he would be better. So, like, do, do you think that do you think that coaches really should be, you know, putting tendo units on to see if, if they are actually getting the benefit from, you know, putting more weight on the bar if they're, if they're moving it faster or slower? Well, he doesn't have to be moving that, that 180 or 200 quicker. He might be moving 100K quicker. Yeah. So if, 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 if he moves, uh, if his max strength is 180, but an important training weight for him or one that really correlates well with performance is how quickly he moves 100. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes to 200, then he might move 100 quicker. Pretty much some of the studies now from Spain show that no matter what, your 1RM, and, and, and this is only the studies they've done, will move at the same speed in a certain exercise. Mm-hmm. So if a bench press is 0.16 meters per second for the mean concentric thing, uh, mean concentric range. So even if you gain... Uh, strength in your 1RM, certain percentages for each person tend to stay stable unless, you know, we haven't done enough studies, unless we do a training intervention, say, you know, but it seems to be 60% moves at the same speed. But as you get stronger, 60% is more more weight, so now you're moving more weight at the same speed. Mm. Does that make sense? So we, we, we'll yeah. probably always move percentages of maximum at roughly the same speed, but the absolute resistance and absolute force that we produce is increased as we get stronger. Yeah. Therefore, we more weight at the same speed yeah. at a certain percentage of our 1RM. Yeah, yeah. So that, well, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. Get, I agree, yeah. Yeah, well, but, And then after a certain point, increases in strength don't readily transfer. Like we see in sprinting, you know, if we take some of the retards level strength, not high level strength, and we put them in a squat program and we do no sprint training, they get faster. Or they jump higher. You know, welcome to squats. Oh, I've made a little jumps going up. Wow. 
Um, fairly easy to do with beginners. But after you get to squatting, maybe, you know, I'm talking about a full squat, past the ground, one and a half times your body weight for, for five or so reps, any change in strength above that does not easily transfer to a change in sprinting speed or jumping. There, that's when we need more sport-specific exercise drills, uh, you know, sprint drills, jump squats, sled work, you know, because you need it. It's hard to transfer that strength then when you're more advanced yeah. into specific power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose what, I suppose the true definition of, of kind of maximum strength, you know, is your build, you know, your your maximum ability to. To, to move a resistance for one hour, one hour effort in spite of the time it takes there's no time limit on it so yeah. what you're saying is as long as your sub-maximum loads underneath that are, are going up and you're moving those faster then, then there's going to be some sort of carryover yeah but, but some of the studies recent studies show that they don't the percentage one RM the speed you lift at don't change but we need to look at that over multiple years because yeah. there's only a, a 8 or 12 week study true yeah um, they're always uh, uh, too short yeah and that's what people do that from a finger study or a interior study over six weeks. I was going to run over 10 years of training doing squats and deadlifts and yeah. bench and push press and cleans and jerks. Yeah, so you know, I'm pretty a bit more practical and applied or been in the trenches long enough to realise you know, we, we need to look at things over long-term time frames. Um, my study over 10 years on, on six elite Broncos showed that the change in power um, in you know, a bench press throw was you know, most highly correlated to change in one RM bench press. Mm. We had the same result over four years, eight years, and ten years. Just over four years, I had twelve people. Over ten years, I had six. But same result. Um, so changes in strength largely account for changes in power, but that doesn't mean you neglect movement speed because movement speed is important too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, who who would you say have been the biggest influences on you uh, as a coach and then also as a person? Uh, can I put it as a coach and a researcher as yeah, well? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, of course, you can. As a researcher, I really like in the eighties and or still now to this day, uh, Harkin and Comey's research, uh, Dr. Kramer, Rob Newton, Greg Wilson. Um, in the area of strength and power and that stuff, they're the main influences in strength. In the aerobic stuff, it's uh, Veronique Bilat, I think it's pronounced Biat, uh, Greg Dupont, and Martin Boucher. Yeah. Um, all very good research. Uh, they are like a lot of the earlier influences for me. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of good researchers now. We're millions of them so I won't go into them but they were pivotal and helped me understand stuff um, strength conditioning uh, strength training wise my first sort of uh, powerlifting mentor was Glenn Woskill he was very helpful on the applied stuff he got second in the, in the world championships in the IPF back in the mid 80s um, there was a few guys from my weightlifting powerlifting club with him Wayne Scar uh, Mason Jardine Dino Tocci all good powerlifters from Australia in that area, era, and they were all very helpful to me. Um, you know, just practical stuff. Mm. Uh, but also, I think when I look at other lifters overseas, uh, for me, the number one guy is Ed Cohen. Um, he's the greatest powerlifter of all time um, across multiple weight divisions across the longest time period. So, uh, you know, I look at a lot of my programs and they're. Uh, 
if I go back, you know, a few years, it really just um, variations of a type of program that Ed Cohen was using in the eighties and nineties type thing. So yeah, I, I use them because they're extremely effective. Yeah. Well, they all, they they obviously worked for him. And like like one of the Broncos programs, uh, preparation period are uh, until maybe uh, until I get more advanced the guys until maybe six or seven years ago were just variations of that. In yeah. season's different, but the prep period programs were pretty straight uh, forward. Uh, Ed Cohen type uh, semi block periodization things, um, which I use in powerlifting when I was a lifter. So. Uh, they worked for me, they worked for all the guys I coached, and they worked for um, a lot of people. They will work for a lot of people up until you get fairly advanced, you know, and then you have to make some changes uh, in certain things when you start plateauing. Um, but, yeah. So I would say he was a, a very large influence as well. I remember, uh, I'm pretty sure it, it was an interview I read with you and, and Maladin uh, Janovich, I think it was in that one where, where you said, you know, when you're looking at sort of resumes of assistant coaches or interns, you actually like to see that they've, you know, competed or, at, at powerlifting or Olympic lifting or they've just been on the platform. Is that true? No, oh, no, they haven't been on the platform. No, no, I, I think as long as they've competed, it could be track and field, you know, shot put. Yeah, Spring. yeah. You you like to Stop. see you like to see that they've competed though. Why why is that then, Dan? If you want to expand. Well, that they have to understand the peaking process. Yeah. So if you're going to coach someone to peak, you have to understand the peaking process. Uh, now you can read all the books, but you need to deal. With, you know, because the peaking process is different in each athlete and, and different in different sports. Um, so if you compete, you understand the juggling of training and other commitments, whether it's work. Uh, life study, um, so you know what athletes are going through. So uh, and you got to put in a performance on a certain day if you're a peaking sport athlete, or if you're a weekly competition sport athlete, you got to hold yourself together across the season, and then still try and peak for the final. So I, I like to see people, you know, not just have a sports science degree. Fuck, everyone's got one of them nowadays. In Australia, I think there's about 23 universities that offer a sports science degree. You know, turn hundreds of people per year. So what's going to separate you from someone else? So you need to make sure that you, you know you have your sports science degree if you if you need it. You, you have some competitive sports background. Um, fine if it's powerlifting, weightlifting, if not, you know, track and field, or it doesn't matter. It could be diving, it could be football, but you know, compete in something, and um, you know, make sure you have all your practical experience in coaching because you know. Anyone can get a program off the internet, but it's how you coach it that counts um, in the long run. Uh, Dan, uh, uh, with the I know you've already touched on some problems, you know, with the research. What are some other problems that you commonly see within the strength and conditioning field, and um, that you would like to see addressed? Ah, uh, well, people don't know if they're a personal trainer or strength and conditioning coach half the time. Oh, I, it's a bit different for me. I, you know, a lot of people have their own facility now, and I understand there's an economic imperative, you have your own facility, there's not enough athletes to go around who want to pay, because athletes are all tight asses, um, <laughs> so you need normal people to subsidise your facility, but that being said, there's a difference between personal training and, and strength conditioning, yeah. so you know, it's going to separate the two, um, so that's a different situation, like a lot of myself and my strength coaches from 
from club land or, or issue of sports, we don't have to go searching for clients. We just, you know, the sport or the head coach signs someone up, that's who you're training. You don't have to get no say in it. Um, you don't have to go looking for them. You don't have to promote yourself. So a lot of people have got this uh, American-style uh, self-promotion type thing going on. And, you know, they're saying they're getting great results, but it could be you know, personal training clients. It's very different to train an athlete over four to eight years going to the Olympics or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of self-aggrandizement and self-promotion, and it's based on you know, results with personal training clients, not athletes, and not in long over long-term situations, mm. four years, eight years, or you know, taking an athlete to a world championship, uh, or, or or taking them from uh, you know high school and through to the pro level, then someone else might look after them. But at least you've achieved something for that athlete, you know, over time. Yeah. Um, so I, I think. First off, working out what you want to be really a strength conditioning coach or a personal trainer. Yeah. Strength conditioning coach probably won't make the same money as personal trainers, but it's and maybe over a long term career you will because you know personal training will bore you to death sooner or later. Because you know so many times you can hear a woman say, "I want to lose weight on my tummy, buttocks, hips, and thighs, and tone up and not gain too much muscle." I mean, <laughs> almost all of them say that. Yeah, yeah, Fuck. definitely. <laughs> That's just like. Or his batshit. Yeah, exactly. Dan, if, if I was to pose the question to you, uh, what is your co- your overall coaching philosophy, or if you want to use the word coaching principles, what would your answer be? Oh, well, it's different in different sports. Um, what happens to work hard? I mean, we, we don't make strawberry jam out of pig shit, so we need to make sure that uh, <laughs> we, we work hard and get our result. And then the only place where success becomes for work is in the dictionary, so you got to work yeah. uh, to get your results. So, my in strength training, my idea is, uh, or strength to power training, get strength. Strength underpins power, statistically and theoretically. So, get your strength level up. Um, if you have to gain body mass, do that. Gain body mass. If you're in a sport like high jump or diving, well, you can't gain body mass. You know, uh, in certain running sports. So, get to the appropriate body mass. Get your strength level up. Start learning to get ex- uh, explosive with that strength and so forth. But you know, it still comes down to at basics. Start with body weight exercises. Yeah. The first resistance training experience you have should be body weight exercises, and you should not progress to barbells until you're confident with body weight and uh, have a coach to give you a program. And you know, that might be 14, 15, 16, whatever age. But start with body weight. Get good on body weight. Then progress to barbells, doing the basic strength exercises, getting stronger, and then start getting into your power work, maybe 17 or 18, no, heavier power. I mean, you always do jumps and throws, you know, light weights for power, but I mean, the heavier stuff. Um, for aerobic capacity, you know, you, 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 it's no secret, it's, it's about work again, and, uh, you know, you mightn't like running or whatever you have to do, but if you have to do it for your sport, you do it. It's no big deal, you just do it. It's something to be done. Um, you know, and mobility, flexibility, everything's important. So I just like to embrace everything, and I just know most of it is uh, about consistently doing it. You know, getting a good program and consistently doing it, time after time after time, application after application. Um, you know, whether it's flexibility, mobility, or speeding, drilling, it's just you know hammering that pattern and that training into your body. Um, so 
you know, I suppose my philosophy is just, you know, keep working hard, uh, but also work smart. Don't kill yourself yeah. doing shit training. So just, just off that, let's say, you know, I go to you, Dan. Let's say I, I was a young player that came in the time you were with the Broncos. Like, what, 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 what would you have done with me? So, like, let's just say, let, from day one, what would have happened? Would you have screened, done any screening? Would you have done any testing, profiling on me? Uh, you know, so... No, uh, basically the physios did the screening, so a man's going to know his limitation, that's their job. Yeah. And they, they tell you everything uh, you need to know. Um, but uh, I would talk to the kid, uh, normally they'll come into our squad um, over the last few years, probably when they're 18. Uh, a lot of them would have been in our system for a few years before that, so, so they already had good technique. One of the uh, uh, other strength coaches takes them from about 15 to 18, uh, season one or two days a week, start with bodyweight exercise and go to barbell. So they might have been in our system for a while, even though I may not have met them or only seen them in a cursory way. Uh, but when I'm in charge of them, I would talk to them about you know uh, what they've done, talk to the previous strength coach about where they're at, uh, what their limitations are, or attitudes like and then um, look at them training and uh, the first uh, I would talk to them and say when, when was the last time you trained what did you do um, get an idea of their strength level write the program for the next say six weeks be pretty basic and at the end of that six weeks then we test um, squat and chin up and bench press and then I know everything I need to know about them from those from that six weeks and then from there on and I can pinpoint the training a bit better four to six weeks normally would before we do our first test with them. Mm. Um, so we, it, it depends. But you know, the real simple program is two or three days a week, whole body. It's just um, simple and just it's seeing how they respond to that program. Then we'll set the next program. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I did is I set every single weight guys lifted. So I had to know a bit about them. So that's why I'd interview them and I would choose their weights. So you don't have to. Uh, the athlete would never have to come in and think, oh, what weight do I lift for these three sets of eight or three sets of five? It would be written on his program. What his warm-up sets are, what every single set he does is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to think. Leave his brain at the door, pick uh, up the way out. So just just, just with, so you said uh, squat, bench, chin, would you te- would you do any other testing for to look at any other biomoral qualities? Would you do any speed, multi-directional, jump profile, any of that? Nah, not young guys, nah. Uh, Someone, sometimes I get speed done by the, the, one of the conditioning coaches. Mm. Uh, just, you know, 0 to 40, so you've got 10 and, uh, uh, 0 to 10 and uh, 40 meter time and the 30 to 40 for max velocity. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't get done all the time. Jump profile, no, not in rugby league. It's not a jumping sport, really. There's only two guys in the whole, three guys in the team that jump. Um, no, and we didn't too much, don't bother too much power training on the young guys. Uh, Sometimes we just do an empty bar, jump squat, have a look at that power with the empty bar. It's fairly safe and easy to do, and maybe empty bar, bench press throw. It's after that next program, when you've got some training background, we would start to do more of the power testing. Yeah. You know, hit jump squats with 60K, 20 and 60K bench press uh, throws or ballistic bench press with 60K. So, you, you know, after we've done the second program, because the first program's really about getting someone into shape, getting them strong. There's no use testing someone and seeing their shit and saying, yeah, geez, that's shit. Cause that's <laughs> yeah, I know, I agree. I, I'm the same. I, I never test beginners. I always I always make sure they have some training on them. We'll get some basic guidelines. But, so yeah, just, yeah. What, what, what would be your, your, let's say, what would be your full criteria for a fully, well, 
whatever an advanced athlete is what you know people always argue what's advanced what's intermediate but let's say you have a guy who's with you you know four or five six seasons he's well he's well trained you know he is what sort of testing would you put foot forward to him then probably they do the same they do bench squat chin uh, power clean from the hand if they're able to a lot of guys get injuries in rugby league and so you know it could be a AC joint of fingers or elbows dislocated yeah. and uh, they can't clean so you, you might only have 70% of people can clean on any given testing day um, and it can be less some years it can be up to 85% can do it some years uh, and we do jump squats and bench press rows we do over the last few years I uh, narrowed down our jump squat profile to just doing the empty bar so that's 20k 60k and 100k so yeah. light medium and heavy jump squat um and for bench press throws, we just did 60. Now, what, what I look at in that is, if I've got empty bar, 60K, 100K, hang clean, say the average hang clean, say 120, and a full squat, there's really five loads across that triple extension, lower body triple extension spectrum. Because uh, you say, say someone full squats 180, power cleans 120, the jump squat data with 160 and 20 then, so you've got five different things to analyze so you can look at you know uh, strength how how they're converting their strength into power during jump squats or or, um, if they've got a big squat and a low clean is it due to technique or they just slow um, things like that so um, so that would that would be the diagnosis I would look at Uh, so with the younger players they might only do the jump squats with 20 and 60 and they don't do the clean so they'll be looking at 20 and 60 and their full squat um, they wouldn't clean till they're uh, in the NRL squad with me. They do power shrug jumps and the, there is pull derivatives, but not the actual hang clean. Very um, good, yeah. Keep that till I've got them firmly in my grasp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with the, I, I know you said you don't use a, a, a jump profile, but I, I, I wasn't so much saying using it for, you know, to look at sort of jump capabilities, but more, you know, you can use the jump profile like a non-counter movement, a counter movement, and say like a, a reactive strength index. To, uh, so the non-counter movement would look more at start strength and counter movement explosive strength and reactive strength index and uh, elastic yeah. reactive. Would you ever would you ever use any of that type of stuff? No, I used it twenty years ago when I worked with divers, Ronnie. Yeah. yeah. What do you think people get the ideas for that stuff? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A, a diver is a jump athlete, so uh, a springboard and platform diver. It's all about their jump. When I got the job in the Institute of Sport for Australian Diving, they said, your job is to make them jump high. Yeah. All right, they look a bit better, that'll help too. So that was the job. And when you got, if the job is about jumping, then you analyze it. Yeah, you do squat jump versus counter movement jump versus vertical jump with arm swing. So you look at three different things. The you know, uh, squat jump is looking at really the contractile contribution of the muscle. Yeah. Counter movement jump adds the stretch shorten cycle in. Then you add the arm swing in when you're doing a vertical jump and reach. So you're looking at three different things. So that's an example of what you do with a diver or a basketball player or you know anyone who needs to jump for their sport. You do a different sort of profile, um, and you wouldn't do you know 60k jump squats as a test or 100k jump squats as a test. Well, you could do 60k, but with you know uh, males, but females might do 40. But you know you wouldn't do the 100k one like you do with rugby league guys. And there's no need to do a power clean with them really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it depends on the nature of the sport, what profile you, you, you choose. I mean, people trying to look for this all-embracing best test for everything. There's not. There's just different options you can choose. Yeah. Um, yeah, for different athletes. 
I suppose just 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 as long as you know my my thing is always I'm off the coaches. I just always want coaches to be objective. You ever know kind of I don't uh, over here in Ireland anyway. One brutal thing that always happens with our Gaelic games here is the, you know the sports coaches or the the managers would always turn around and be like, you know the lads aren't fit enough, and I'd be like, like how are you gauging that? Like you're just you're just you know you're just randomly just saying that like you know and then we go off and we test the guys and they're all flying fit say on a yo-yo and like you know so you know i turn around and say you know is it that they're not fit or is it just that psychologically they're not in a proper culture to win like you know yeah yeah the coaches look at pushing blame all the time i always say that but we know from you know it's just human nature if the games are beyond you if you're being outplayed out skill you actually start losing the desire to, to run um you know and, and contribute because it's no reward for it because yeah. you're still going to lose so guys subconsciously run less which means they lose more and they look less fit yeah. next week you could play a team of retards and beat them by 60 points and you're running all day so a lot of it has to do with whether you're winning or losing as soon as you start losing the coaches are not fit yeah. happens all the time yeah. Yeah. they need to have a big hard long look at themselves in the mirror some of the coaches so they're not looking fit because they're not winning and therefore they lose the desire to run yeah. which makes them look unfit but they just lose the desire to run uh, we we see that, uh, but you know, fitness does contribute to performance. But when you have lots of running one week and, and less running the next, and there's a win and a loss, then it's a psychological factor, isn't it? I mm. mean, you, know, you you can't run twelve commas one week in a game and nine the next and say, oh, he was fit last week, not this week. Yeah, there's something else involved. So uh, you you know, the coach is always looking for scapegoats, and uh, sooner or later, as a strength conditioning coach, you'll be in, on the end of that. Yeah, that that's what 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 I'm what I'm getting what I'm kind of getting at though is I always tell strength and conditioning coaches always have objective markers to kind of cover your ass. So like if like the coach comes after and says, you know they're not fit, they're not strong, and then you turn around and say, listen, here's their testing results, here's normative data. I've done my job, like so. It's it's on. Oh, yeah. It's on. You're it's, gonna have, yeah. You're gonna have that data. Um, that's why like reading some guys thing the other day not to test in in rugby and that. How do you keep your job then? Uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. The, the coach has got, I don't know how much intense the uh, analytical scrutiny is, is, is in Gaelic football and hurling and that, but in rugby league and in AFL football, there's a lot of data that looks at the effectiveness of, of the coach, you know, like uh, how well the team got out of trouble, you know, how many mistakes, this and that, and, and so forth. So the coaches, they've got a lot of here have a lot of data where they can be scrutinised by everyone in the media now you know so there's a lot of telltale signs that are about coaching so um, you know you, uh, I think uh, when, when people start doing a bigger analysis of execution of skills in the game um, coaches will see that uh, will come under a bit more stress than they already are I suppose they're under a bit of stress anyhow that's why they blame someone else yeah, true. I like it. It is a tough job being being you know a head coach of a of a big team, obviously. But yeah, Dan, uh, something I've always wanted to ask you about is uh, your your own thoughts on program design and then also periodization, and particularly periodization for team sports. I, I know I have the book block periodization, and I've seen a, a template in there that you you gave to Isherin, looking at some in season stuff, but. With program design, how do you set up your programs, Dan? And then from there, what are your thoughts on periodization schemes? Uh, well, I, basically, periodization schemes change with the level of adaptation of the athlete for me. Yeah. So the lower the level, they use what I call a very subtle linear progression all year round. Um, 
then as they get a little bit more advanced, uh, maybe their second year with me, they or uh, maybe they're 18 or 17, they go to a, a subtle linear, but less subtle, a little bit halfway between subtle and what I call block linear progression in uh, the preparation period, a wave model in season. And then the most advanced athletes with me, they do a... Um, a block linear one to start the general prep, then they move into a semi-conjugate sort of undulating periodization. And what I mean by is a weekly, uh, bi-weekly undulating um, in a specific prep, and then they go into a wave cycle in season as well. They always use the wave cycle past the beginner stage in season. Um, so I just think there's different periodization models that suit different time frames and different levels of athletes. So there's no best way, there's just probably more appropriate ways for different athletes of different capabilities and experience. Um, could, you, could you just explain what you mean by, by the wave model for the listeners? Uh, yeah, my wave model, which I've been using for 20-something years, if we look at bench press and across, say, six weeks, this will give you an idea. Week one is uh, three sets of eight on 70%. The next week you work up to it goes eight six five and that last set of five at eighty percent. The week after you either have a choice, you go either three reps at eighty eight percent, which is say a four rep max, so it's not max effort, it's near max, or you go three reps at max effort. You make a choice how fatigued or how fresh they are. The week after that, week four repeats sort of week two. Uh, week five repeats uh, week three. And week six, you either do a, uh, a two RM or a uh, three RM uh, or one RM or something like that. So it basically goes eight five three five three two. Yeah. So very similar to Jim Wendler's, but he's about twenty years uh, younger than mine. Uh, mine or mine's twenty years older than his. <laughs> you you you, you should have came out with your own book before. Yeah. Like, You'd be I well known. I just just with regards to your 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 sort of program structure, like you know, so your guys come in. Are they doing any like self my fast release dynamic warm up? Do you is it like usual structure? Are they doing some speed work, power work, strength work, ESD? Is that how yeah. you? Yeah, we always um, guys need to do their rolling and releasing before we start warm up. So if we they, our, our training always used to start with military like precision. So if the warm up was at uh, ten a.m. They want to roll and release. They have to get there at 10 to 10 and roll and release first yeah. on their own time. And they know what to do. This, everyone knows what to do. Um, then we start a structured warm-up. We normally take about six minutes on upper body day. We take a bit longer on lower body day. There's more uh, preventative exercise we would do. So we have some of the just dynamic exercises that prepare the body. And there's certain preventative ones. So, for example, you could say that an overhead squat is just a good dynamic exercise and uh, box pistols and... Um, hamstring bridges and there's also some other stuff you might do that preventative you know monster walks with bands around your knees and some other stuff like that um, a, a few other half and hemi type drills so lower body day would be a bit longer upper body day would be shorter um, and, and on power day we would do only a few of those exercises and do uh, morph ourselves into body weight pliers fairly quickly within the warm up because uh, we're into a power workout so yeah, so it's a combination, again, different things on different days for different athletes. Again, the younger guys uh, do a more simple warm-up. Uh, older guys, when I mean older, I mean NRL squad versus the under-20 team. 
the NRL squad does a more intense and individualised and warm up, and the younger guys get a more holistic uh, type uh, yeah. warm up that's uh, less individualised because they haven't played enough big games to know what their problems are yet, or haven't been in the system long enough mm. to develop enough problems. <laughs> so, um, but we have a good warm up, and then we go in and lift. Um, and then we finish with our torso ab work or grappling, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, you, you seem to be a big fan of just big compound movements. So obviously, I'm presuming in your training, you're just getting in, hitting, you know, hitting your squats, hitting your overhead press, your military, your chins, your Romanian deadlifts and stuff like that, is it? Yeah, but I also, like, on lower body day, I always, I finish with squats or second last with your squats and last might be Romanians. Uh, because you, you you need to do the one leg and split legged exercises, so we tend to do them first. Because you've got to concentrate on them. You know, there's balance involved and there's not weight, so they actually help warm you up your big squats anyhow. So on, on lower body day, we do a lot of those, you know, one legged Romanians and, and step ups and uh, single leg glute bridge and lunges, lateral lunges, a lot of that stuff. The first four exercises in the workout, then we finish with our squats. On upper body day, you know, we start with the big compound movements and work downwards. Um, but everything was a compound movement. The smallest exercise we'd have might be upright rows. So yeah. there was no, you know, no isolation stuff. You don't get time. I, I said to guys, the only time we ever did curls, if a guy's got an ACL injury or something like that and is out for six months, once every two weeks we do some curls and triceps. Yeah. <laughs> Just gonna alleviate the boredom from somehow. Gun show workout at the end. <laughs> uh, Danny, you, you kind of touched on on this in your previous a- uh, answer. And this is probably the the question I've wanted to ask you most because I think this is kind of what you you know one of the aspects you're most known for is culture in the team setting. Um, I, I read a great interview with you and, and Milad and ja- uh, Janovic, a written one, and uh, you you know you really touched on the culture. I thought it was a brilliant interview. I remember you know a few of my friends had actually emailed it to me and. I emailed it around. Can you just speak about you know setting that culture in a team, in, and you kind of touched on it, you know when guys were late. I think they had punished you know they had like to, they had to go on the row or something like that and do a, a row for distance. But just speak about setting culture in the team and why it's so important. Uh, rugby league and, and certain sports like that are very very militaristic. You have a line of defence. I mean the, these sports are based on military training. I mean that's what they existed for you know for hundreds of years. So there's the same things that. You know, military uh, are big in like, discipline. Will help set your defensive line in league or union. So we're very big on on discipline and maintaining your role uh, within the team um, and, and respect for uh, the other person. So, for example, you coming late to training means you have less respect for your teammates and the coach. Your time is more important than theirs, apparently. And that's just saying that straight up. Um, we, we wait to start we can't start training until you get here so we waste our time because you think your time is more important so normally with younger athletes if they're late for training you know, they get a punishment for distance or you know, road for distance or extra work at the end with the NRL squad it's just a basically it was a $250 to a $500 fine first up and I'm talking about one second late so if you roll a door and we start training at 9.30 and it's 9.30 plus one second you're copying either 250 or 500 dependents on the side of your contract. Next time it doubles up, then it triples, and or you get sacked. So uh, 
you know, Broncos are very big on that. I'm very big on that. Uh, you, you be on time and be ready to go. Um, and then, you know, that's part of culture. That's that respect for, you, for your teammate and, and your team. Um, but within the, apart from just lateness, I mean, that's just a, a certain thing. There's a culture of, of wanting to train hard and uh, being a technician. So if you think, oh, this is from sort of Shannon Turley, the Stanford coach, he talks about you know, a professional does what he's told and a technician does what he needs to, to, to be a better athlete or go seek out certain things where a professional just does what he's told, when he's told and doesn't do any extras, you know, leaves, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. You'll have a lot of professionals in your team, but you need some technicians. You need people looking for, for perfection. Um, Say so to you, how can I get better? How do I improve this? The searches for improvement. Uh, you have a lot of guys with cancer. You, know, you just need to cut away because you know, they're not even professional. They don't want to do stuff. So you're going to eliminate, cut out the cancer, have a minimum standard of professional and, and seek to have as many technicians as you can who are seeking the right path to success. Um, and have a, a training culture that encourages improvement. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. When I tr- work at the Queensland Reds, the rugby union team, a lot of players there in the same position they want to train together. They didn't want to see uh, if they were in competition because other guy gets selected in the team. They didn't want to see what he was lifting. They were allowed to train at different times. At the Broncos, we put guys together in the same position. May the best man win. Here's your training partner, the guy going for the same position as you. So they just train together and train hard and encourage each other because they know they're driving the genetic quality of a group up or, or the, you know, like the, the slowest wheelbase will get hunted down from behind in a group. But if we make that whole speed of that herd faster, no wheelbase gets left behind. So we're trying to encourage a culture where everyone strives to improve and encourages everyone else to improve. Because we are... You know, responsible for the guy beside us. You're responsible for your teammate beside you. And you're a reflection of your training partner. If your training partner is a shit trainer, well, guess what? You're a shit training partner for allowing him to be that way. Yeah. So I, I really want guys to, to push hard, to be encouraging. Uh, you, you know, you, if you've ever been to a powerlifting or weightlifting club, you'll see it. Uh, it's natural in most clubs. Um, but in team, certain team sports, it, it's not natural or they don't like it or they not used to it, but uh, I, I can't see why. It's, you, you want your training partners to succeed and you want a culture of we're in this together, we're going to train hard and we'll get a good outcome. And if we don't succeed, if we don't win the championship, we gave it our best shot, uh, given the limitations we have. But you, you want to give it your best shot um, and it won't be achieved for not working hard. And how, how do you deal with individual or individuals who, who seem to just constantly go against that ethos you yourself as a coach do you just say I'm not dealing with it anymore do you hand it over to the, the, the manager or how would you deal with that I've had probably only had one or two my whole life in, in rugby league at the Broncos when they've hot recruited someone and they made a mistake in recruitment there's only <laughs> a rule in league now don't hire dickheads because a dickhead is a cancer on your team yeah like it can affect other parts of the, you know young people could be a professional in two years, but you know, so uh, it's never been too much of a problem because the Broncos normally recruit pretty good guys. It's only once I think they recruited a dickhead in the last long. Yeah, yeah. So, but um, I, I was always pretty aggressive, actually. I, I probably shouldn't have been, but I just said, well, mate, it doesn't matter. Fuck what you think. I'm the strength coach. 
So yeah, you know, it's I, I you know if uh, you do you know what what I want you to do, this is what the team wants you to do. Now we can have this argument between me and you, or we can have it with the head coach here. So how's it going to be? Yeah. So I, I said that probably to two guys in my life, and uh, that was it. Because uh, as soon as you invite the head coach, if you know he's going to back you up, then the player will back down and do what he's told. Yeah. But if the head coach is weak and, and one is still disciplined, then you're in trouble. You know, uh, I, I think everyone should read The uh, Art of War by Sun Tzu. If, uh, Great book. Yeah. 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 So I, I read that more than, uh, I read that in the 1980s, before the Wesley Snipes movie came out. Um, so the the first part of the you know the, the uh, concubines and marching is very good, you know who are you going to sacrifice to instill discipline? So uh, I think people should read that and understand that art of war is like the art of sport too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the general's the coach and the CEO is the CEO of the belt of business yeah, exactly, <laughs> of the yeah. team. Yeah, it, that's, it, it is a really really great book, uh, the art of war eyes or the war of art. It's uh, yeah, it's excellent. Uh, Dan, I, I, again, I want to be respectful of your time and not keep it too long. Uh, it's not, I've, got, I've got plenty of free time, so just do it. Oh, oh, great. Ask what you can ask, man. I'm, I'm, I'm finished with Arvo now. Um, I, you know, I suppose if I didn't ask this question, everybody, everybody will be asking why I didn't ask. So, you know, the first time I, I really heard your name was through an article. I actually have the article. Let me just get the proper title of it here now. You, you know the one I'm talking about. Recent trends in high-intensity aerobic training for sports. And I saw this oh. article pop up, you know, on strengthcoach.com. And I saw this, you know, this Dr. Dan Baker. And I was like, God, this guy actually, this guy's, I was like, this guy's ticking all the boxes. He's a strength coach. He looks like he trains. He's not, he's not just a researcher. I was like, this guy has it all. I was like, this guy, you know, so I was very impressed. But how did maximum aerobic speed come about, Dan? Like, where did, where did it come from? How did this pop into your head one day? Uh, now, it's from the French researchers, Greg Dupont, Ronnie Biat, and uh, Martin Boucher. There's a lot of good French research on aerobic training, especially uh, Veronique Bilat, um, who was the uh, mentor for the other two, Greg and Martin. Um, so she was a middle distance runner, high level middle distance runner, and she did a lot of great research in France. And sometimes, Max aerobic speed is called uh, VVO2 max velocity, VO2 max, but that's just too hard to type, so yeah. we just shorten it down to MAS. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of the great French research, and people weren't embracing it. You know, there was all this research from France, and I don't know, people are jingoistic or, you know, they look to America, but I don't think you can look to America in aerobic sports. They have timeouts. So you've got to look where the, the data's coming from, and uh, Greg Dupont did a great paper in JSCR, I think maybe 2004, on Lille, you know, and uh, it was applied. It was on the Lille professional team in, in soccer, and uh, it was a great paper about you know they're doing this one day a week, repeat speed the other, and they improve their rabbit uh, running speed, and they improve their winning percentage of games um, at the same time. Uh, so you know the. The problem in, in a lot of sports in Australia was, you know, we had very good distance athletes uh, and swimmers and cyclists and runners. People were taking their training, which is steady state stuff. Uh, it's not intermittent. It doesn't really apply to field sport athletes. And we needed something that uh, 
bit more specific to our needs that suits the intermittent nature of football sports and fight sports, um, not you know, going for a two-hour jog at 70% of your max aerobic speed. That'll really help when you get punched in the head. You know, so, so I just... I really think uh, we've got to give credit where it's due, and it was a great French research. Um, I got, you know, read uh, the articles, and you know, we were implementing it at the Broncos, and uh, and people still didn't know about it. So uh, I thought I'd write that article because, uh, you know, I talked to people and they were a bit clueless about the research. It says it's, it's pretty simple. Now, like the thing with strength coaches. And I'm talking about strength coaches who are strength conditioning coaches. They have a power thing or weightlifting background or shop with background. They're clueless sometimes about aerobic conditioning and they get scared of, oh, I don't know how to take it. I don't look like someone who, who does that stuff. But, um, but if you can revert back to a maximum and your MAS is 100%, a strength coach knows how to program around 100%. This is 100%. Or if it's 100% bench press, 100% MAS you know what you need to be programming around type of thing yeah. or, or you have an idea that so just to give strength coaches uh, an, an idea I mean, I'm a power fighter I don't <laughs> or ex-power fighter I don't like doing MAS stuff <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but you've got to know how to coach it you know yeah. I, I don't want to <laughs> I can do it <laughs> and uh, I used to run cross country in high school and, uh, and yeah I still do submission wrestling and that but I don't, I don't want to do it <laughs> But if you have to do it, you have to do it. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's a, it's an extremely like I mean it's it's like there's so many of my colleagues over here in Ireland using them. I, I use them this year too, and they're just you know what I really love about them is I suppose that individualization that comes because again, I suppose one of the one of the sort of issues with some other protocols is that like you know you're kind of lumping everyone in the one boat, whereas with this yeah. the, with this there is that sort of individualization and also too there's that kind of almost built-in sort of feedback systems because you know if a guy goes from the 83 meter group to the 86 or 88 meter group whatever you know that he's improving so it's it has a kind of built-in feedback as well which is great for the guys to see in a week-to-week basis yeah and, and, and there's the other article on the cross training version you know that's uh have you got that one as well yeah i do i have that too yeah so you know if, if they can't run we put on rolls of bikes and do the same sort of stuff and yeah i think it's makes a lot easier for us to train people uh, you know, aerobically doing that um, you know, for our field sport athletes. So I, get, I get a lot of feedback from Ireland actually about it, so people are using it over there, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. I think one of them was probably, was one of my friends, he says he emailed you, he emailed you about it one time, and he said he got back to him, he was delighted. He was like, he, that Dan Baker's a gentleman, I emailed him, he emailed straight back. <laughs> uh, I always replied every email. <laughs> Uh, just, Every just, just on uh, while we're kind of on energy systems here, uh, Dan. W- w- one of the areas that really sort of, um, to be honest, I don't really, I don't really, you know, when you're a young coach and you're in the field first, you think you know everything, and you're, you're you know, you're, all, you're you have an opinion on everything, and then as you kind of mature more, you kind of mellow out more, and be like, you know, you don't really kind of, I wouldn't say care, but you're kind of like, listen, people are going to do what they're going to do, so you mellow out. But one sort yeah. of area you know that's still it's getting better but but you'll see like a lot of sort of misapplication is the area of energy system development particularly for a lactic aerobic sports or hurling gaelic football rugby american football they keep doing a lot a lot of glycolytic work and now sometimes majority of the time it's just because they don't understand energy systems but sometimes the coach will say i know it's a lactic aerobic but we do glycolytic work for that psychological element 
So, like, I suppose I have a two-part question. One, you know, do you think there's any benefit to doing glycolytic work from an en- from an energy system standpoint to an alactic aerobic sport? Personally, I, I don't. But second of all, would you then just use it for maybe just that bit of, like, you know, psychological, if you want to use the phrase, mindfuck with the lads to kind of, you know, give them a bit of team sort of togetherness about it? So that would be my two-part question, if that made sense. Uh, yeah, well, the thing with glycolytic work, it, it, you know... It's acidic, so it can break you down. If you do too much of it, you'll, you'll burn out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So even if you do want it to, you know, toughen up mines, uh, it's a poison chalice in a way. If you do too much of it, uh, your burn goes out. And, you know, we've done that at the Broncos, you know, not through my choice, but some of the other conditioning coaches. This is a long time ago. We're really into that sort of stuff, and we managed to lose about seven games in a row one year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go from first in the ladder to eight or something. Um, uh, so if you do want to use it to toughen guys' minds up, you know, be aware it has, it's a poison chalice. Yeah, use, it spa- use it sparingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just depends on, on the sport specifics, you know. Even in certain parts of games, it could be a, a period of repeat high intensities with short recovery you know you, you do an effort then you think you're going to get a long recovery then you have to do an effort again so it might have some application in certain aspects so I'm not saying you don't have to do it again depends on the sport and the person but you, you know statistically we see the main things is you know is your alactic power and your aerobic and um, I, I, I think you'll get more bang for buck improving your aerobic system because even a glycolytic system the recovery is still going to be aerobic based, you know, yeah. yeah. After. So, um, I, I just haven't seen the statistics that show that those with a higher uh, glycolytic anaerobic system perform better in both sports. You know, we can take a 400 or metres in sprinting, but in team sports, whereas I've seen plenty of data that says aerobic system work uh, differentiates the men from the boys and the women from the girls in, in you know, a lot of field sports, soccer, uh, rugby league, Australian rules. Um, actually, one study in Australian rules looked at those characteristics and they found those with a high anaerobic capacity actually didn't survive the training as well. Um, and not because it's a bad thing, it's just that they've just got an extra gear sometimes and that gear takes a lot out of you. Like I said, if they start using that glycolytic system to push through, um, they can burn out. So they don't seem to survive the training, that's, that stays in JSCR yeah, um, yeah. on Australian Rules football team. I think the head author's Gaston, but I might be wrong. But, you know, so I'm just not convinced of the need to do too much glycolytic work. I mean, we're doing weight training, you know, if we're doing a bit of hypertrophy, to get some glycolytic work there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, um, you know, get your aerobic system good, get your speed and power and, and movement good and get your strength power good. Um, and then... Yeah, that would be my last avenue to look at if I had to look at it. Yeah. But yeah, okay. guys want to, coaches want to toughen you up mentally and, you know, I think there's other ways you, you, you can toughen up people mentally doing repeat aerobic. It doesn't have to be yeah. aerobic, you know. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's exactly, you're, you're in the same exact thought process as me. Like I, like, so when coaches want to do like sort of work with that, I'd be like, you know, I, I would say, okay, uh, you know, I'll, like, you know, the coach might say, you know, do something hard with the lads, and they want something that's going to be like, you know, the heavy legs and the white lung. 
but I just do like a lactic capacity work. So, you know, like repeated 30s or as you said, even some repeat aerobics, like, and it's still tough, like, but again, it doesn't have to be this, you know, heavy dominant glycolytic work. Cause as you said, like, if you keep doing that, it's just going to break your athletes down eventually. Yeah. I mean, you, you could say we'll do 400s and have a, a two is to one recovery. So you do a 490 seconds, 45 second recovery if you want. So that, that'll kill people in three reps, you know? Yeah. Uh, if they want to, but it's heavily stressing the aerobic system there because it's two words to one rest. You know, 90 seconds on, 45 seconds off. You've got to get that 400 meters in, in uh, 90 seconds, boys. First one's easy, second one's hard, third one, you, your balls are hanging out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, that's, 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 you know, sometimes it's nice to hear someone who, you know, who's as experienced as you kind of just confirming what I'm currently kind of thinking and doing. So I only have about two or three questions left, Dan. One is just uh, I saw another brilliant piece in that interview you did with Maladin, and it was just it was this brilliant sort of picture, and it was you know it was it was on your gym wall, and I'm pretty sure it, it was from from your time with the Broncos, and you know it was like uh, did you you know did you uh, re- did you rehydrate? Did you get seven to ten hours of sleep? I loved it. Like I thought I thought that thing was so good. I wanted to actually like copyright it and get it. But like, can you just can you just explain that sort of uh, what's the word? You're kind of putting like self reliance on the players who are like here. If you're not yeah. doing this, it's not us. It's you. Yeah, I have to. That's Dean Benton's work, not mine. Dean put that up. So uh, I, I just because a lot of times I say this is stuff we get at the Broncos, and I got you're part of a performance team. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm not the author of that, but it was Dean Benton. Um, and what was what? Though, as a, as a performance team, we expect athletes you know we have a mutual obligation my obligation is to train you the best i can i'll do as much research as i can i'll do everything i can to give you the best training program and implement that program your responsibility is to do that program to the best ability and to do the recovery process away from training now don't come and say that training is hard if you've been out you know hitting the piss chasing uh women and eating uh mcdonald's and kfc so the onus was to put that back on them before we even look at the training program, make sure you've done all these factors. You got up, you've had a glass of water. You, you did all your recovery sessions after each training session, your recovery units, you know, they're hot and cold or if it's cold, did you stretch beforehand? Did you take your protein drink when you're supposed to? All these things first before we even look at the training program. So what we see is, you know, um, sometimes you know, one or two guys break down, but the whole group doesn't break down from a training, you know, a number of units together, like over a week and a half. So what what are those guys done differently? Provides, I mean, there, there's individual factors, but sometimes they're just not doing the little things right. They're trying to say, oh, I broke down because of, you know, training was too hard. Well, no, you came in slightly dehydrated, and when you're dehydrated, the muscle's not strong, therefore it can't take the impact, and you've torn a calf, you know, or a hammy or something. So whose fault is that? The training or you not being hydrated? Yeah. Let's take responsibility. Let's look in the mirror here. Big house of mirrors. Have a good long hard look at yourself. Um, you know, who, who was a professional? So the program is well designed. But it was based on you turning up to training, adequately prepared for the training that we are going to give you. Yeah. So yeah. you need to be fully hydrated, fully recovered. Um, have done your own rolling off, like I said before. We do our rolling off and trigger pointing before we start warm up. So you get there 10 or 15 minutes early and do that, and turn up the last man with a cigarette and a pie in your hand and you know, run out in the field. So yeah, it's about giving responsibility back to athletes. Now a lot of athletes, they've got a sense of entitlement and mollycoddling that um, 
You know, they can say, I've trained a bit hard, I'm not recovering. Well, big deal. Make yourself recover. A technician will find ways to recover. Just, a professional, yeah. Just on that, Dan, when we're talking about recovery, did, did you ever use any sort of monitoring systems? I know HRV is, is a big thing at the moment, or did you use anything along those lines? No, we didn't use HRV, but I would use HRV now. We used different things with you know, questionnaires and uh, RPE loads. Yeah. Uh, at the time, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the HRV, I lie in a dark room for 35 minutes, silent. That's not going to happen in a team sport. But with the systems now, like uh, I personally use uh, a system and it takes less than a minute. And I found it extremely uh, indicative of my recovery or if I'm sick. Um, I had a sinus infection yesterday and the day before. Uh, maybe the surf's a bit dirty over here in Bali. Um, I got lowest ever HRV. I was 48. I couldn't believe it. My heart rate was flying when I woke up. So I would use HRV now because there's better systems and they're well uh, correlated with the longer stuff. You know, a few years ago, people say, you're not going to get guys to lie down silent for 35 minutes in a room every day. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. But the new systems now, hook into your smartphone, takes you one minute, they can do it. You know, finger monitors, heart rate monitors. I would definitely use that now if I could um, with athletes. We use RPE and uh, also for the gym, we just use the empty bar jump squat every week, 20K and sort of a look at, uh, you know, what, what state your legs were in to explode. You know, some people might call it neural freshness or whatever. We weren't measuring the nerves, so I don't want to use neural alertness or freshness as a term. We call it maybe what, what state of explosiveness your legs are in. <laughs> so we use that every week and... Uh, you know, a few other things. And what basically that explosiveness would indicate was what was your RPE load or your training load for the nine days beforehand um, or, or seven days beforehand. Yeah. So they do pretty well correlate. You know, if you had a big training load, your uh, power or, or velocity on that empty bar jump squat would be suppressed slightly. So uh, I think a lot of these things will, will start to correlate um, and they're fairly simple now. HIV is simple, a jump, squat, the empty bar is simple. simple if you have any sort of tendo or gym aware or a few other cheaper ones coming out this year. Yeah, so I, I, I'm definitely the same as you in that I, I've actually been using Joel Jameson's BioForce for literally one year right now. I think the first, I started using like the 30th of June last year and I've, I've recorded my HIV every morning since far like one or two mornings. And it's the exact same as you, I find it very indicative that like the, there, there has been times where I had a head cold and just like you said, like like my heart rate was way higher than, than it was for me, and, and like my HP was down. And, but it, you know, I can even and then if I look back at the trend of say before I got a head cold, you could see that it it was trending down over the course of maybe two weeks, and then you're like, Jesus, you know, so like uh, it, it's been very indicative to me in that like I know like I feel good today and it's good, and then when I don't feel good, it, uh, you know, it usually isn't good because most people are like. Well, what if I feel good and it's red? And I, I haven't found that with me. I usually find it correlates to how I actually really do feel. So. Yeah, uh, mate, I, 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 yesterday was the first time I didn't train, despite what my HRV said. I, if, I, if I've got training, I just do it. Yeah. Uh, but yesterday, you know, it was really, really low HRV. It was like, it was 48 or something. What the fuck? I tried to go out for a surf and came in after like 10 minutes because I couldn't lie on the board. Uh, so every other time, you know, I also find the HRV is indicative if you've been on a piss the night before. Um, you know, moral drop from normally around the high 70s or early 80s down to about low 60s. So I think it would be good in team sports where you find out which guys have 
snuck out the piss the night before looking at the HRV, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. If they're 70 to 80 most days, and all of a sudden they're coming on Sunday morning and they're 63, hang on, champ. <laughs> you yeah. You looking juice last night, haven't you? Uh, no, coach. Yeah, oh, and you're just like, yeah, breathe, breathe out there and then smell and like, <laughs> yep. Um, so Dan, just my, my last my last two questions are just going to be, and then obviously we'll 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 wrap up on on your your coming to Ireland in October. Um, so the the small sided games, uh, I don't know if, if you if you like have you implemented these? Uh, there's this discussion of you of using small sided games for for conditioning. So like, what what is your take on that? Uh well, you you'll see a lot of the data at my talk in Ireland, but it basically it goes like that. This. Um, well, if we use a small side of game such as uh, offside touches, basically soccer rules for rugby league. So you pass the ball for your hand, but you can run anywhere you want type thing and throw, throw the ball forward. What we've seen at the Broncos is uh, the higher your MAS score, the more metres you run in the small side of game anyhow. Yeah. And the more metres you run is means you win. Um, you know, you just more players pushing forward or, or around the place. So have a higher MAS to start with. Yeah. So then what we saw was if we have two groups of players who have the same MAS, but one group was uh, more skilled, i.e. they played NRL level, but the other group were like state league level. So the difference wasn't in fitness, but it was in what level they have accomplished. Then the higher skill level people also run more. Yeah. So you have to look at the nature of your small side of games. Who you got playing? Do you have a couple of pumpkins on one side who can't run? Then everyone gets held back by that. So first off, you still need to be fit because the fitter people will run more, and the people who are smarter will run more uh, to win. And and, uh, and you'll see the data in my island talk and how uh, that's how blood the water, mate. The, the good players they'll run to annihilate the uh, other guys. Um, because they know they can. They they use their fitness as a weapon to attrition the weaker opponents. Weaker as in weaker fitness or weaker skill. Yeah. yeah. So small set of games you can use them, but I use them in conjunction with your conditioning. It's uh, very interesting actually what you just said there because I've had this discussion with other coaches too. Like so, people always go to me, you know. What's your thoughts on small side of games? And I said, well, what are you using them for? Are you using them for a, conti- a, a conditioning effect or are you using them for a technical, tactical reason? And the fact that you just said there that the team that wins is the team that will cover the most, that, that's actually uh, that's very, very good thinking because what, what I was saying to some other coaches is I'd often get coaches saying that, you know, we do small side of games and such and such never moves. He's a lazy bastard. And I'm like, yeah, but he scored five goals in the game because you've made this a technical, technical small side of game where it's like the team who scores the most wins. So that guy is being efficient. He's he's like, I'm not like well, he's being efficient with his with his energy, like, and he went on and scored five goals. And you're giving out that he's not moving enough, but he just won the game for the team because he scored five goals and because he you know he just he, he he was smart. He read the game better. So like that's what I was saying to some coaches. Like, well, if you want this for an energy system benefit, you're gonna have to change the constraints of the game. So. That's just a brilliant what you said, Dan. That what you yeah. did, what you done was said the team that wins is the team that runs the most. So it's just about you know what are you, what are you trying to get out of this small side of yep. game? Really? Well, that was in a conditioning a game with a conditioning objective. If the coach wanted a skill based objective and decision making, he makes a different constraints, like you're saying. Yeah. And we would say then, well, if you're going to have a 
small side of game, which is skill and decision making base, have a MAS type running drill unit beforehand. So those players go into it with a state of fatigue. Yes. So you then see skill under, under fatigue and, and decision making under fatigue because anyone could be pretty good at training, but you get the last three or four minutes of a half when you're under the pump and you're fatigued. What are the skill executions you have then and what are the decisions you make then? Are they good or are they poor? So how do you replicate that in training? So yeah, the constraints have to be this is a conditioning-based small-sided game or this is a skill and decision-making small-sided game. Yeah. If it's a skill and decision-making, then precede it with a conditioning unit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even when we had a conditioning-based small-sided game to stop the lazy guys, they had to have a running target for the whole game. Um, for that small-sided game, five-minute game, it was 800 metres. So they had to do the 800 metres in the game, otherwise they got penalties at the end anyhow. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. That's great. Dan, the fi- final question before I let you go is, so I, I recently just bought the Exos video of your Bands and Chains uh, video series, and it was, I, I'm not, I haven't fully gone through it yet, I've watched the first two or three videos, and uh, it's excellent so far. I, I really like the... Uh, the the Saint the Satan chin up set you had you know you were like it's called Satan because it's six 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 but it's also called Satan because it's tough as fuck <laughs> but uh, can you can you just you know for the listeners touch into you know w- why you're such a fan of using the bands and chains uh, well I just use them with more advanced athletes again I use them with the guys uh, if they haven't done enough years of training you know you got to keep cards up your sleeves but. If you've trained for four or five years lifting weights and maybe you're 20 or so uh, or more, 21, and you've got pretty stable technique and you're starting to plateau, it just allows us a different uh, method of overload um, rather than just pure weight. So we've got you know, accommodating resistance. So it, it, it's a fairly effective way of breaking through plateaus or keeping advanced athletes uh, progressing. Um, if I had one... Uh, regret or it said I didn't do enough bands um, and chains for max strength work with Broncos uh, players till the last maybe five or six years we were, we were, we were doing chains back in 1997 you know I was a pal if we knew about that stuff but I kept holding back because these guys aren't ready they're not strong enough I always kept thinking guys aren't strong enough because I can in my mind I'm comparing them to powerlifters but uh I should have implemented it earlier, but in saying that, I would not implement it too early with athletes. I mean, I think uh, you've got to be a little bit advanced uh, and earn the right to do that stuff. It's just an effective way of creating an overload um, and preparing people and making them stronger. <laughs> They're great for strength and power. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I obviously really enjoy them, and you know, I've used, done a few studies on them with the effects of chains and, and bands and power training. So. Um, if you've got athletes who four or five years experience and they're starting to plateau in their strength, I would use bands and chains for bench press and I would just use bands for squat. Um, I wouldn't use a chains for a squat. I don't like them for squatting. It's a bit unstable, I think, But um, when you've got a walkout rack. But uh, the bands are great for both and the chains are good on bench and a few other exercises. So, But again, for your more advanced athletes, you know, ones who are starting to plateau, do you have any uh, guidelines with regards to like how much band tension versus how much bar weight, say, for maximum strength development? Uh, yeah, you want it, it's um, you're pretty much limited by the bands 
width and thickness or what size band you use. Yeah. But I always I'd say make sure that it, it, it's giving you at least 10, if not 15 or 20%. So if you get a, um, a 20 millimeter band that's four and a half or five mil thick and, and you uh, set it up on the bench press like you see in my website, so that's one band, that'll give you maybe 20 to 22 kilos at lockout. Yeah. So that, that'll suit most males bench pressing up to 150 kilos because you know, 20, kilo, 20 kilos represents, say, 16% of 150k bench. So as long as you bench 100 to 150, that uh, 20 mil band, that's uh, 4 or 5 mil thick, 4.5 or 5 mil thick, either one, will suit most bench presses. Now, if you are squatting, you probably need the next size band up, at 28 uh, mil one, and you'll need one of them on each side, but you won't get as much force. So you might get 15 to uh, 20 kilos of force on each side of the band, so 30 to 40 kilograms. So if you're 200k squatter, again, that's the right proportion, um, or 150 to 200k, so yeah. forth. So, you know, there's certain bands that suit certain strength levels or certain exercises. Um, so they're my guidelines, you know, uh, the, what I call number two and number three bands suit most people. Yeah. Like yeah. the 20 mil one, uh, 20 mil wide and the 28 mil one wide. Um, just, just just for the listeners, Dan goes through all this on that Exos video series, the different types of bands and resistance. So if you want to, find out more you can definitely find that I can, I'll link that actually in the show notes there's some free shit on my website too about how to set up bands and which ones to choose I think some article yeah, yeah uh, well, I, I can. Uh, you, you, you have your own DVD too on that don't you Dan uh, yeah well, my DVD how to use how to use bands and chains yeah. <laughs> <laughs> appropriately named I see um, well, I, think, I, I think like how to use bands and chains for strength, power, and size. Yeah, well, I'll, so, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll link that to me in in the notes. I just the, the reason why I asked for the presenters because I know I, I was at recently at a Westside Barbell seminar here in Dublin, and uh, they were just speaking about you know, it was more it was more so for the dynamic effort. You know, we were just talking about the band resistance and why these exact percentages, and they were just saying because you know if you kind of go outside of these percentages, they were saying it's it's it'll be either too much or too le- less overload at the top and at the bottom. So. That's why I was just asking with regards to strength, like, you know, how much resistance do you want at the top? And because I, I was actually, I was toying around with it yesterday with the squat with bands. And I think I, you know, I had two fairly thick bands in the squat, and I was getting about, you know, I got the weighing scales out and, you know, stacked up the boxes, and it's very awkward to do, but I did it. And apparently the bands are giving me roughly 60 kilo at the top. Um, and so I was squatting like, you know, it was about 180 or so at the top, and then it was only like 120 or so at the bottom. And I was kind of thinking, you know, is this too light in the bottom position now, or. Do you know, so I just yeah. that's why I was kind of asking, but uh, it, it yeah, def- that's a lot of clarity. I, I, I would uh, unwind them and tr- try and get maybe only just 40 kilos at the top. What I actually do is you, you can periodize your band resistance, yeah. So if you have those bands, say you work up to a max triple every day, uh, you can have those bands one week, next size bands down the, ne- the following week, so your bar weight is different. Yeah. So it might be 180 at the top, and now you've got 140 at the bottom. And the next week, a uh, different band size again. So now it's 160 at the bottom, still 180 at the top. And the next week, just all bar weight. So yeah. what you've done is you periodize how much resistance you have at the bottom. But at the top, it's quite uh, quite stable. Yeah. You'll probably get an idea of that um, in uh, my chapter in the high performance book that David Joyce. I was just I was just reading that just before you came on, just as you rang. I was just reading through it. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely read the rest of that. And that's something else I'll put in the show notes for the guys is that Dan has a chapter in David Joyce's new book, The High Performance Handbook. So. There's, a, there's an, an entire bench press cycle there of bands and chains. 
as an actual cycle from the Bronco. So you'll be able to read it as this is the bar weight, this is the resistance at the top, and we had bar weight plus band or chain, and this is the mean resistance. So the mean resistance is the average of the resistance at the top of the band or chain plus the resistance at the bottom, where you it had uh, either minimal or no band resistance. So if you, for example, if your lockout was 180 at the top and the bottom you're 120, the mean resistance of that weight is 150. So your mean resistance should allow you to lift the same amount of reps uh, irrespective of whether it's bands, chains, or, or no weight. So if you five rep 150 uh, normal without any bands or chains and you set up, say, 180 at the top, 120 at the bottom, mean of 150, you should still be able to five rep it. But it should still be the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that, 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 makes, that makes plenty of sense. Dan, listen, I've taken up plenty of your time. And just for the, for the listeners over here in, well, for the listeners everywhere, but particularly for the Irish listeners, do you just maybe want to touch into the, the seminar you have over here in October and, and do maybe just tell maybe what, what, what's going to be discussed and what's gonna, what are you going to do for the two days? Uh, yeah, well, uh, James Murray is hosting it um, in, uh, Mid- I think it's Midlands, Ireland. Yeah, it's in, uh, it's in Longford for the, for the Irish people listening and that's the weekend of the 11th and 12th of October. Yeah, and I'm, there may be a, a seminar on the next week with Malad and I, I'm not quite sure yet. Because the one that I'm doing the workshops all sold out, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. Yeah. So uh, you, your your seminar sold out real quick. Like I literally, yeah, uh, I, I like apparently got like one of the last tickets to it. So. Oh, happy days then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'll be going through, um, you know, like all, all the choices you face and the long term athlete development stuff. Uh, you know what what training I think is appropriate for teenagers and and different ages and and working out to professionals. And we'll actually look at you know, Broncos programs from you know, the years they won grand finals. We we'll look at you know, and then talk about these are problems I face, and we'll we'll see. Oh, this is a good program, and this is a shit program because they had to go to a commercial gym two days for the grand final with the players, and you could do fuck all there type thing. And yeah. you know, all versus you know, it's the reality of stuff you face. You know, and, uh, so we'll, we'll we'll look at that. We'll look at uh, MAA stuff, you know, aerobic running stuff, various drills. We'll look at the data from the small sided games. Um, so that people can see, uh, yeah, small sided games are good, but you still need to do your conditioning because high MAS wins um, generally, uh, uh, you know, and all sorts of stuff like that. So uh, it'll be pretty. It, we'll look at bands and chains as well, uh, how to use them, how to set them up, uh, but, you know, because there's different outcomes we want for sports athletes versus powerlifters. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we'll look at a whole lot of different things. Uh, it should be good. Um, my wife's coming with me. She's also a strength conditioning coach. Um, she weighs all of 39.2 kilos, so she'll be there lifting the heart out. Um, awesome. So we're looking forward to it, actually. Uh, We've so never been to Ireland, so looking forward to coming out. This, this, this is going to be your first time in Ireland, is it? Yes, yes, first time. Oh, so. We're, we're, we're going to they're gonna have to get you very drunk when you come here, so... Ah, uh, are you threatening me with a good time? <laughs> um, Dan, just 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 for, for for a final thing for the listeners, where where can they find out more about you if they want to find out more? Uh, my website is uh, www.danbakerstrength.com. Yeah, and again, so, I'll put uh, that, I'll put all that in the show notes, guys. So don't worry about it. It's uh yeah, it's, it's a lot of free articles there you can download and stuff like that. So um, it's not one of those money-making sites we sell stuff like bands and belts and straps but 
there's free articles there and stuff you can just get some information off um, stuff like that so Great stuff. Great stuff. So Dan, just uh, maybe just stay online there just for, for 30 extra seconds after I wrap up here and just say my goodbyes to you and whatnot. So guys, thanks for uh, you know downloading another podcast and thanks for your support and you know keep sharing these podcasts on your Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds and whatnot and uh, keep uh, leaving reviews on iTunes because it bumps us up. So I just want to really thank uh, Coach and Dr. Dan Baker for you know taking an hour and 20 minutes out of his day, an absolute gentleman. Uh, you know, wealth of knowledge, and that was a you know, another brilliant interview up there. One of my favorites. So, to everyone, thanks for listening. Take care. I'll talk to you soon and stay strong. Mm-hmm.